All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with author and musician John Zaremba about martial arts, electronic music, Italian horror films, hard work, his new book, XLZABK001, which is a collection of tales that span the genres of sword and sorcery, horror, action, and philosophy. Also, you'll find links to John's website and the Amazon link to purchase his book in the description. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Glaylancer trampled on their corpses. When the piles became mounds, he used the vantage of the bodies to launch himself through the air, allowing Exceliza to reach even further. As its nihilistic blade cut deep and dark, and as the storm continued to rage violently overhead, bits of men became one with the mud below. So much blood was cast into the air that it nearly equaled the falling rain. Glaylancer was covered in it from head to toe, his pale skin and long black hair reddened by the enemy's gore. Even his teeth were red as he inadvertently ingested more and more of his enemy's blood, only to spit it out with an exuberant war cry, replete with the euphonious sound of insatiable barbaric triumph. Exeliza, however, remained untarnished and pure in its ever-blackness. What started as a path to Ictedrol widened to become an unobstructed ingress of death as Glaylancer cut down every man where he stood. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> All right, John, so you know how this goes. We don't do anything fancy. Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Uh, man, I've, I've been a fan of your podcast for a while, so I was expecting this question, and I am certainly a fort builder, like literally a fort builder. I grew up in a uh, small town in Pennsylvania, and I literally just went down in the woods and built forts. Like, I would just cut down trees and stack them up and build walls and tell my mom that I was uh, spending the night at a friend's house, and we'd go down there and have, like, little campouts and stuff like that. I remember... Uh, making steakums do you, you know what steakums are i don't know steakums steakums i don't steakums. off the top of my head i don't know it's like the worst kind of beef you could get <laughs> they come in like these they're like shingles that you put on a roof but they're made out of cows it's just like the cheapest way to feed a kid when you're when you're you know growing up on a budget so i would just take steakums out of the, my mom's freezer and go down there and make a little campfire and cook up steakums and eat them in the nighttime yeah i love building forts i still like building stuff now even as an, in a, as an adult i'm always stacking something up or building a wall or something sort so we're talking we're talking 70s 
I, I was born in 76, so early 80s was probably, you know, I was like, I'm thinking of like seven or eight years old is when I was into that stuff. You know, we're friends. I know you've lived a lot of different places. Where do you consider your roots to be? Is it Pennsylvania? That's where I was born. I haven't been back there in a long time. I was born outside of Pittsburgh and I lived there till I was 22, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to California, lived out in California for six years, lived in Utah for six years, North Carolina for four or five years. I'm in Tennessee now. I got relatives in Colorado. I spent a lot of time with relatives in South Carolina. Home, I guess home is where I'm at, but Utah is my favorite place to live. And I still go out there every year and spend as much time as I can out there every year. So I would say that's where I hope to retire someday is Utah. That's probably where I'll end up. Why do you think Utah is your favorite place? Man, it is is just the prettiest state in the country. Like all the Western states, I like Western states the most anyways. I like the climate and I like the mountains and I like the deserts and I like the lack of water. I'm not a big fan of water. Same. Utah has a good mix of all that stuff. You got mountains, you got desert. But on top of that, dude, you know me. I am not a religious guy. I'm like about as far away from Christianity as you could get. But Mormons are the best neighbors you could have. And they deserve a lot of crap because their mythology is so twisted and weird. But the thing is, like, they don't want to interact with you if you're not part of their their tribe so i don't i lived out there and but here's the thing so like their mythology tells them they they've got to protect their neighbors so they will guard your house against a break-in but they won't invite you over for dinner and that's my ideal thing because i don't like people in the first place that sounds great yeah the mormons make it great out there and it's a it's a generally a safe state you know like a lot of people have got guns out there and usually the places that have the most guns are the the safest legal guns anyways there's very little crime a lot of history too i like the western i don't like a western lore like i'm a big fan of western movies and stuff like that Hmm. and utah just has a lot of the pioneer stuff like a lot of the towns have maintained their pioneer atmosphere there's a lot of old relics of old homesteads and stuff like that and i just eat that up all the time how old were you when you were living out there in your 20s Late 20s into early 30s. I'm bad with time. I'm, I've been here for six years, and I don't even know how old I am. I was born in 76, so I'm like 47, something like that. I think I left Utah around when I was like 37 or 38. Mostly my 30s, I guess. Gotcha. So what were your parents' professions? Were you guys moving around a lot? No, no. My parents, the, my, well, my dad was a... Uh, He's a smarter version of Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson was the guy at the nuclear plant that just made sure nothing blew up. And that's what my dad did. He retired from a nuclear power plant. My parents were both hardworking parents. They both worked. My dad worked two jobs. My mom always worked one job. They didn't move around a lot. Like we would take little trips here and there, but I moved to all these places by myself. I've been, I, I tried to be as self-sufficient as possible. I moved out to California because my girlfriend was in California at the time. So I moved out there to be with her and I went there by myself, just drove across the country and things didn't work out and went to Utah. And, you know, I just, I like, uh, I still travel all the time. I like to see different parts of the country and experience different. The USA is great because each state got its own thing going on. There's a lot of interesting cultures and diversity in the United States that is, is fun. But no, my parents, they didn't, no, they didn't move around a lot. They, they're in South Carolina now. They went down there to retire. So, John, when you when you look back to those uh, early years, what are the formative films and TV shows that jump out to you? I didn't realize this was a formulative film until I watched it again a few years ago. So, Roger Corman's Humanoids of the Deep. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen that movie? Mm-hmm. It was my parents, my mom, really. My dad My dad was like a, he is he's still a very uh, extremely uh, religious guy. So, he wouldn't want me to watch stuff like that. But my mom and my sister showed me that movie when I was a kid. I don't know how I, I was probably like six years old or something. 
I didn't realize how filthy that movie was until I saw it again <laughs> as an adult. I mean, it's it's just a, it's a you could never make a movie like that today. And that, but it, but it stuck with me. Like when that little sea creature bursts out of that lady's stomach at the end of it, I to me that was bigger than Alien. Like the Alien scene with all that kind of stuff. Like to me that movie stuck with me. Even like just the the, the way the characters were in the movie, the guy with that cool Jeep Wagoneer. I've always liked Jeep Wagoneers, and I never knew why. I think I traced it back to the one he drove in that movie. Mm. So that was a big one for sure. As far as like getting exposed to uh, horror and stuff like that, we had a local video store that uh, sold a lot of European VHS tapes and stuff like that. They were kind of unique for the small town that I grew up in. I got to watch like Lucio Fulci movies mm. on VHS. Been a big fan of any anything that was zombie related. I've been a big fan of zombie movies up through the 80s. Those things are pretty formative. And then, then like all the action stuff, all the kung fu movies. I used to watch USA Network. Really, now that I'm saying it out loud, I probably learned more about movies from like Rhonda Shear and Gilbert Godfrey than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Because I would watch them every night and they would have the trauma movies on there. They would have, a, you know, weird, quirky horror movies. And then they had Kung Fu Theater on Sunday mornings. I would watch Kung Fu Theater for a couple hours every Sunday morning. I remember getting the TV guide and like looking to see what's the, what's the name of the movie. Oh, it's it's Monkey Kung Fu. I can't wait to see what a monkey. What does a monkey do Kung Fu for? And I would watch it and I'd freak out, you know. You just mentioned martial arts. Now, I don't recall if we talked about it, but I do remember seeing a video at some sort of competition when you were younger. Were you uh, involved in martial arts back then? Yeah, I was um, I was a fan of anything. Again, these are things I reflect on as an adult. But I think the reason I, I was attracted to martial arts is because it's a beautiful way to kill people. If you're going to kill somebody, you could just walk up to them and stab them. Okay, anybody could do that. A grandmother could do that. But like, if you do some elaborate, balletic type of technique that just like destroys them. I think I find that that's, that's the art. With martial arts, I've always leaned much more towards the art than the martial. I've never been a fan of like MMA and jujitsu and all that kind of stuff. I like the stuff that doesn't work in real life. <laughs> ah. So I would watch these kung fu movies and you see these guys like standing on one foot or using their fingers to do things and all of these pirouettes and stuff like that. Very <laughs> much like dance. And you'd get slaughtered in a street fight trying to do any of that. But I still liked it. It was a very romantic portrayal of combat. I did tung sudo. I did Taekwondo and then I did Shaolin Kung Fu all throughout uh, through high school. Once I graduated high school, I, I unfortunately gave it up. I love martial arts and I still do. I'm, I'm like way out of shape and I'm old now, so I don't do it anymore. But I still watch movies. I still imagine fights in my head. If I'm listening to music, doing something, even if it's just yard work, as I'm doing yard work, I'm imagining people fighting all the time. And that's where like a lot of the things that I ended up writing about and doing music about that deals with conflict and battles. A lot of that is stuff that I thought of as a kid. I had a paper out. So I would just delivering papers as a, as a, I was like 13 years old, I think, delivering papers and stuff like that, just imagining battles as them going down the street all the time. That explains the Steven Seagal fandom. <laughs> you know what? Above the Law, I think, is a legit good movie. Like, he was great when he started. I think he had a unique way of, he was a guy that took all of that dancey stuff right out of it. Because up until then, even like Van Damme and stuff, Van Damme, none of this stuff in Bloodsport would work in a real fight. At least Steven Seagal brought some bone breaking and some grit to it. Right. So I respected him then, but man, that dude, I, I don't know. He's, he's really one of the phoniest people out there now. He really just compensating constantly now. It's damn near impressive. 
<laughs> have you seen like the the demos that he go, he'll still go to Japan and stuff, and he gets these guys, and it's just so fake. And it wouldn't be so bad. Everyone gets old. I'm old, and I accept that I can't do the things I used to do. But yep. there's no way I'm going to put a spray painted widow's peak on my head. Like I've got, like I've still got the long hair and a ponytail, <laughs> and spray paint the goatee and everything, and wear the yellow glasses. And then, like, if you watch any of his movies that have come out in the last few years, like, they're, they're all stunt doubles. He can't even lift his leg above his hip. All the shots are waist up. Yeah. Slap fights. There's a lot of slap fighting now. To deviate from Steven Seagal for a minute, we all have to start out with our parents, you know, listen to what they listen to, essentially. So what was your early exposure from mom and dad, and when did you branch off and explore musically? My parents weren't really into music. I can't think of anything that they ever played in the house that was memorable at all. They just weren't musically interested. My sister... She was into like pop music and stuff like that. So if I had to think like the earliest stuff in the house, it was probably the stuff she was listening to. She was into um, early like hip hop and funk, the early 80s. Midnight Star was a band that, a group was a band that didn't play instruments. They, them, I remember, and uh, was it Atlantic Star? Holy crap. It was Atlantic Star. It wasn't Midnight Star. That's a different band. Atlantic Star and uh, stuff like that. I don't know. I remember seeing Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Mm. The Barge. That's who it was. I was trying to think of who the, the group was that did the soundtrack to that, The Barge. So that kind of stuff kind of stuck with me, but it, it wasn't anything that made an impact so much. Except that it kind of led me down the path of getting into possibly liking stuff. Like I, I, I'm a still a big fan of Prince. Like I like Prince up until he converted to Jehovah's Witness. All through the 90s, half of the 90s, he was one of my favorite guys. And I probably got into Prince from her because she probably was listening to Prince around the house. I started liking early hip hop in the mid 80s, and I had some friends that were into that. But that could have been something that rubbed off me. My sister was probably listening to some of that too. When did the urge to actually play and create your own music begin? That was later. When I was a kid, I had a tape recorder, one of those shoebox size cassette things. And I used to just go around recording stuff all the time. So I had an interest in recording audio before I had an interest in actually like performing music or creating music. So I think that's kind of one of the ways I gravitated towards electronic music. Because electronic music to a lot of people isn't real music because you don't play anything. It's like developing film in a dark room. You know, you don't consider yourself a painter because you could develop film. It's kind of the same thing. So I was just into recording stuff. And I would record little skits. I would record people doing something out in the neighborhood or going to the woods and recording and all that. Once I got to be a teenager, there was a, a radio station out of Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And I was outside of Pittsburgh, but I could just barely pick it up. They had, it was a college station, so they had all the cool, obscure music. You know, any college student that has a radio show is going to play something other than Casey Kasem's Top 40 or whatever. Right. So there was a guy that did electronic music on there. There was a guy that did death metal and stuff like that. But I got into the electronic music from there. I just didn't know what it was. At the same time, I was big into video games. And all the music in video games is electronic. It may be much more melodic and have traditional song structures, but it's all made with sounds that don't exist in nature they're all supernatural sounds so i kind of like that as well and i kind of was trying to put all that together and i was thinking okay well this is really cool this has an effect on me and it triggers my imagination i get to think of things when i'm listening to these sounds that don't exist i just started seeking out okay, how can i do that what 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 do they use what do they do how do they make this stuff i had never seen a synthesizer before or a drum machine or anything like that and slowly but surely i just would like read magazines and stuff like that on electronic music there was a great magazine called future music from the uk i would read that a couple of other ones just would show people in the studio and i'd look at the pictures of what they've got in their studio oh that's a roland alpha juno Okay, well, let me look on, before this was before Craigslist, what was it? It was like the Penny Saver. I don't know if you had the mm. Penny Saver in, 
in your area, but like a local marketplace thing that came in the mail. I'll look through there and go to the music section. Oh, there's someone selling a, a roll of Alpha Juno. Let me go drive down and buy it. <laughs> and they just kind of figure it out. There's no tutorials or anything either. I think uh, in a lot of ways, I think it's harder to start electronic music without anyone to guide you because there's so many, it's like, it's not intuitive at all. You're going through all these parameters and all these knobs on the synthesizer, figuring out what it does. And very easy to just go down the route of making a bunch of noise and chaos, which is kind of what I did for the first 10 years I was doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But to answer your question, I guess trial and error more than anything, just being curious about it. I didn't have any friends that were into that either. I had a couple friends that were in bands and stuff, but none of them were like really into electronic music like I was. So I didn't have any guidance, you know? I would just buy stuff because I, I always worked. Like, like I said, I had a paper out when I was a teenager. I was working through high school and everything. So I always had cash to just go out and buy something. And I would just, okay, this guy, I remember one time I, I bought this sampler. It was a Roland S10. I'm telling you all these gear names, but I've listened to the guests you had on here and they're mentioning gear. So hopefully it doesn't. Yeah, people like that kind of stuff. Even if I don't yeah. have any idea what you're talking about, people do. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the first sampler I bought. It was this giant keyboard, Roland S10, and it had like a half of a second of sample time. So that means like you can get like one little sound of someone grunting or something. And that, that would be something you would play. But I remember driving to Pittsburgh and, and going up to this guy's shady apartment apartment and buying it and it was just a crazy experience kind of putting myself at risk as a younger person to seek out these things that i didn't even know what they did i just knew it said sampler on it and i knew that sampling was a way to record sounds and play it on a keyboard so i'd buy it and bring it home and just try to figure it out trial and error what was your exposure to metal would you say i was late to metal and i think that's why my opinions on metal are, are different than a lot of people that grew up with it so i remember like metal that was on you know mtv or whatever and i remember liking the video for rats round and round i didn't even like the song so much i just liked the fact that they were just like pissing off all these rich people downstairs you know coming <laughs> through the ceiling and all that and i remember twisted sisters videos were always fun and stuff like that but i never took the music seriously like I, it, to me it always just seemed kind of clowny mm-hmm. and stuff like that it was just it was just kind of goofy but it was because i only knew the stuff that was put on the radio or was on mtv or whatever you know and i'd see like the even then i didn't like the guys in the spandex and the the coming from a guy that's a fan of prince if i'm going to criticize another man for wearing makeup you know they, they're wearing makeup the wrong way so like <laughs> these guys like poison and all that wearing makeup like i i don't know man it just didn't it didn't make sense to me as a teenager when i was getting into electronic music and i was doing the sampling stuff i always wanted to have stuff that had a harder edge and there's different guys out there making electronic music that would sample guitar riffs and stuff like that so i had a friend my buddy don anderson i haven't talked to him in a while but he was a good friend of mine up through my 20s he was always into all sorts of stuff and I asked him, I said, so I want to get some guitar riffs to put into this album I'm making. What would you recommend? He says, Coroner. I'm like, Coroner? What the hell? Like a guy at a, at a place with dead bodies. Okay, whatever. So I went to the used CD store. So Coroner was the first metal I ever bought. And it, it was uh, No More Color, I think was the name of the album. And I fell in love with it. Like from there, from getting into metal just to sample like a three-second little clip, it spoke to me and it, it was just a snowballing from there from that and that was about 1998 i think yeah so i was already in my 20s by the time i got into metal and i skipped over all the radio stuff and went right to corner which is not usually someone's first metal band and it just snowballed from there i had another friend dale veed i don't know where dale's at man he was like a guru for me i owe a lot of my experience to dale he was a guy that grew up in the uh, florida death metal scene he used to do artwork for the 
tapes and stuff like that that the local bands released and he knew everything i learned so much from that guy and he's i think he's in europe now or something like that he, he just I, I lost touch with him but he got me into a lot of the metal that really became some of my favorite bands he introduced me to power metal i never even heard of power metal before i learned about manowar from him and we could talk about manowar if you want to talk about manowar but um really got into him. some of my favorite bands were sort of started from the things he exposed me to because he, he he weeded out all the nonsense i didn't have to deal with the stripers you know or if, or uh whoever else was out there that was just crowding up the the field you know so uh speaking of man of war john what happened after man of war six album Man of War was my favorite band for like so long. I got in, they were are well past their sixth album by the time I got into them. I think like Triumph of Steel was already out. That was their seventh album by the time I started, you know, finding them. I think Ross the Boss is, is part of the problem. The reason the band sucks as much as, I mean, Ross the Boss, he's still doing his thing. I don't have too much negative things to say about him. And I'm a pretty critical guy. I think when he left the band, then it was just up to Joey to make all these decisions. I don't think the guy's capable of doing it. I think he's got a lot of like self-confidence problems, Joey. Here's the story I'll tell you. I never, I, I've never seen Manowar live properly, except in about 1999 or so. And I didn't even know they were Manowar at the time. I was uh, fans of this Pittsburgh local industrial band. So I was listening to industrial in the 90s called Mace. And they were from Poland and they were just a weird band that just ended up in Pittsburgh. And I went to see Mace and they were dressing, you know, in their fishnets and all that kind of stuff like, like the Nine Inch Nails guys did. But for whatever reason, they, they opened for Manowar. And I think this was around the time where Joey was booking local bands that were the, as opposite from them as possible to open for them just so the Manowar fans could ridicule them and chase them out. So I went there to see Mace and they didn't even get through a full set of their music. All the Manowar fans, and I didn't know who Manowar was. All the fans of Manowar were just like calling them. You could imagine the three-letter <laughs> F word, right? And and we left. Like I literally got chased out of the club, and I didn't even get to hear Manowar. But when I got into Manowar a couple of years later from then, I started talking to my other industrial friend, Jim Simonic. I really like this metal stuff, and he never liked metal. He was probably wiser uh, about what Manowar was at the time. <laughs> I like this band Manowar. Did you ever hear of them? Is he? He's like, John, we saw Manowar. They're the ones that kicked us out of the club, of the club that time. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But yeah, Manowar, man, I, I could talk. I, they're doing Disney music now. Like literally Disney music with female vocals right now. Their last album, or last EP that came out, it was like five tracks, only which one of them was an actual song. The rest was like these Disney ballads. And then they got the guy from Nitro in there with that stupid wig and his his uh, missing upper lip and his pointy nose playing his like, he, he's, he thinks he could shred, but all he's doing is just playing a bunch of notes in a row. There's got to be some logic to shredding. I'm not a guitar player, but I know well enough to tell even David Shankel. I used to kind of think David Shankel, when he was a man of war, was kind of pushing it by just being too noisy and random with his with his shredding. But compared to the Bateo guy, like at least Shankel had a flow. He's got like a like he should be in the Ramones or something. He's got one of his stupid Ramones helmet head things with it, and it's not his hair. His hair's jet black. His hair's blacker than the monitor on this computer. I'm looking. I'm not on camera, so you can't see it, but. His, his hair is as black as night and he's like in his 70s and then he puts on these platform shoes just the whole costume thing that's the thing with metal i, I get that it's serious and i have i am still attracted to it because it's the only serious music out there all this other music is like too self-aware to be serious and that's the jam the joy of metal is that it's not so self-aware is a bit aloof yeah in a good way aloof towards the right ideals and i love metal for that but when you're a grandparent, if my my grandfather fought in the Korean War in World War II, 
if I caught him looking like that Bateo guy, I, I would just disown the family. I couldn't imagine seeing my grandfather dressed up like that, going to these pathetic countries performing this music that they can't even play in the right key anymore. Because heaven help him, poor uh, Eric Adams had the voice of an angel. That guy was like the best singer ever. And you can't, no one can keep their voice forever. It's understandable. But don't like tune down. He can't hit the notes. So they play in the wrong key. You know, the, the songs are all slower. They're just, they don't have any energy anymore. It's just sad. They should have, in retrospect, they should have stopped with Kings of Metal. If Man of War's last album was Kings of Metal, it would have been like the most epic band of all time. They would have a legacy that would have been revered and respected for generations. But he, Joey's just dragging the band's name through the mud, making a fool of himself. It's sad, and it bothers me because I'm so judgmental towards everything, really. Uh, but I'm especially judgmental towards the things that I like the most. The better somebody is at what they create, the higher the standard they need to be held to. Yeah, and, agreed. Uh, Manor was, they were at the top, man. They were like right up there at the top of my list. And it's not like I'm heartbroken over it. It's just that they deserve to be held to that standard. If I'm really good at something, I want people to hold me to the standard that I'm good at. If I'm not able to meet that standard anymore, I move on to something else. Joey should have moved on to something else. He, he, he's, he, screws his fans so bad i never like bought into all their stuff their merchandise and all that kind of thing but their reputation was they're the only band that won't shit on their fans that's like his exact terms i we never shit on our fans and he shits on them constantly he can't even play a tour he cancels every third gig that they're supposed to have and it's always because he's not getting the money he wants out of and they promise releases there is um you know we're both fans of like sword and sorcery and music that's intertwined with fiction and stuff like that, right. like Bal Sagoth kind of stuff. Joey wanted to do sort of a Bal Sagoth thing based on the Rings of Nebulum, this uh, German fairy tale, I guess you could call it. He promised the fans, this is going to be a four-part series. I've got an entire opera written, and he pre-ordered the first thing, and it was like three tracks, and then he never released anything else after that. He's constantly making promises he doesn't keep. I don't get it, dude. Like, I, I think being as famous as they are or were is, a, is such a privilege that it's that or, like, getting a real job. And I know it would suck for him to have to get a real job. I understand. And they probably got... They're probably all families. He likes to pretend like he's single at 70, but you know he's probably got kids all over the place. He's probably playing child support to all these people, and he's, he's, he's kind of put in a corner. I feel bad for him for that part, but he screwed up because he had a record label, Magic Circle Music, that could have been a profitable record label if he didn't screw over everybody that was on his label. The whole drama with Rhapsody, another favorite band of mine, he screwed over Rhapsody so much that they had to sue him and take him to court to get off of his label. This was... um. I don't know, 2005, 2006 or so. Right when Rhapsody was like at their peak, they signed to Magic Circle. The thing is like that Joey wanted to always be the most epic band out there. And Rhapsody's music is epic by nature. You can't, even now it's kind of hard to find bands that have more epic compositions than Rhapsody. He was, he was kind of intimidated by that. So he would take the orchestration out of the albums or he would force Luca to turn down his guitars or play less complicated solos and stuff like that. So they wouldn't outshine Rhapsody. Yeah, it was bad, and and they were they were screwing them on tours. Like Luca wanted a tour all the time. They took too much of a cut, or whatever they negotiated the cut would be, it wasn't honored that same way. And they were in litigation for years. And Rhapsody got tarnished for like five or six years. Like they were kind of a joke. Soon as they broke from Magic Circle and they came out with a couple good albums before they split up, they were like on top again. They were yeah. great. And Luca, even his the stuff he does now with Fabio, I even like his solo records. I think he's still a fantastic uh, songwriter and musician. Just got bogged down because of Joey and his, his dyed hair. We did mention radio a bit earlier. I know you 
Well, you're an old school Stern fan. I'm an old school Stern fan. But what about radio drama? You know, you had that Haunted Abbey project with Matt. Matthew Knight, Cauldron Born. Folks started listening. Did you enjoy audio dramas or radio plays, stuff like that growing up? Or was that just something you wanted to try with Matt? I never listened to anything like that when I was growing up. Mm. I wish I had, would have been exposed to that kind of stuff. There was an album that I was doing that I needed someone to narrate. So I have, I have a story promontory. And it was like my final album. I'm not good at doing that myself. And I wanted someone that was more theatrical and more professional. And another uh, mutual friend of ours, Howie Bentley, um, I talked to him every day about all sorts of stuff. And he recommended Matt. I had never even heard Eternal Winter at that time. It was one band that just slipped through the cracks. I didn't catch him. Hooked up with Matt and he did quite a bit of work on Promontory. And that experience was so positive. He and I became friends. Haunted Abbey Mythos, it came as a result of that. Probably primarily his idea on the Haunted Abbey Mythos stuff, because he's way more into weird fiction than Mm. I am. It was a lot. I mean, the the first one we did was Clark Ashton Smith. I never even heard of the guy. (laughs) (laughs) He picked out the story and it just worked. We did uh, two albums and then like a third segment. I like the experience. I wish that that sort of thing was more popular. There's a couple of guys that are doing stuff like that now. I guess it's just a tough sell. It's a, it's a small audience. I couldn't find this post exactly. I've been looking for it. It was, I believe you shared this once on your artist page, the John Zaremba artist page, but you were referencing a specific song that you were listening to while you were walking through a city that you grew up in, but it stuck with me because you described it in a way that was a bit beyond surface level nostalgia stuff. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? And is it typical for you to mark memories with music? It is, yeah. The um, it wasn't a particular song, but it was a band called Spring Heel Jack, mm, okay. and it was um, a mix I made that uh, that the, that uh, I think you liked. The town I grew up outside of Pittsburgh was called Baden. Like I said, it was a small town. I would just go out at night. Like I've always been a night person. I would go out. I'd, my parents would be sleeping. I'd leave the house at like midnight and I would just walk the streets of Baden until three in the morning and wow. I'd just come home before they woke up. Like a lot of people would go out at night and they're teenagers and they would go out to get into trouble. But I would listen to Spring Hill Jack in particular. I listened to variety music, but Spring Hill Jack was the, the music. And I don't know how to explain it, but I really felt like I was getting messages from those guys through that music. Like they were communicating to me in some psychic manner and it, and it just it just spoke with me and that town of baden my, like i said i've been back i've been back there many years but i went back there maybe 10 years ago or so and i did the walk again as an adult with the headphones on listening to spring hill jack and it's and it happened again it's the same weird thing with this it's, it's a duo it's not like it's two guys something about their music carries and it's not a, a literal message but it carries something that speaks to me in a way that's beyond just the notes of the music yeah those guys and i i, um, I still listen to them frequently and i, I want to go back there again next time i go back to baden which who knows when it'll be it'll be a long time i want to do that again you know it would probably be like 20 years since the last time i was there try it again and see if it still works so before we go too deep into it you wrote a book why did you decide now that now was the time to write your book XLZABK001. <laughs> the title is just to be difficult. So, yeah, I don't think of myself as a writer at all. I've written stuff in the past, but it was always like nonfiction essays and things like that. Probably, if I was going to be completely.
completely intellectually honest, I miss making music. I retired from music in 2017, and I need a creative outlet of some sort. I've got ideas in my head that are constant. I'm a bit of a workaholic. I need to be doing something. Working around the house and doing renovations here is just isn't cutting it on a creative scale. So I needed to, to have some way to get my ideas out there and get my opinions out there and, and create some sort of art. And writing seemed like a way to do that. It was a way to test it if I was good at it enough without like a huge investment. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you try to have a, if you want to be like a welder or something to get started welding, it's going to be thousands of dollars and equipment and class and all that kind of stuff. Writing, I mean, I could do it anywhere. I gave it a shot. Um, like I said, the final album I did was Promontory, which was a, a short story I wrote for that album. I still thought it was all right. And I thought, okay, well, let me just try taking the things that were in other bits of music I recorded and translating that into a story. It's kind of what I did. I did it just for myself, honestly. It was just like uh, nobody that makes any kind of interesting fiction makes money off of it, you know. Yeah. And the best of us, you know, <laughs> yeah. And speaking to the choir, I guess. Probably anyone listening to this yeah. that's a writer doesn't make money off of it. So um, I just had to do it to get it out. Like I said, when I was a, a younger person doing paper routes and stuff and imagining these battles, the sequence of those battles remained the same. So I would imagine the fight sequences the same way every time I did my paper out, and they became ingrained. When I got older and I stopped having a paper out, I was really into fitness. I would jog, I would run, I would hike and all that kind of stuff, always with headphones on and always imagining these different fight sequences. So these things were stuck in my head. When I was living in California, I thought, foolishly well i could this is the place where movies happen right so i could just go make a movie and i could <laughs> i could find someone to film these th these battles and stuff like that how hard <laughs> could it be and of course that didn't work out i didn't get started but i wanted to but i still had these things in my head that no one else has ever experienced so i thought with the uh, with especially the stories of this last book here most of the the sequences in those the action sequences in particular or just transcriptions of the things I was imagining when I was younger, combined with the things I was feeling when I was making the music that corresponds to those particular stories. With writing specifically, what does your process look like? Do you outline heavy, or do you sit down and let things flow and then fix it later? I've outlined everything in this one. I'm a, I'm a bit of a freak. I outline everything. I just built a chain link fence and I outlined the process of doing that. <laughs> so like it's probably a doing, good thing. Well, yeah, I guess it is, but but I think that, that that's reflected in my style of writing though too. My style my writing is choppy. Like it's not I, I've I've never read a lot of authors until the last few months. And even if I don't like the stories they tell I'm uh, astonished by the technique they use to tell those stories, the way that these guys can write something that flows and feels poetic and feels natural and is awe-inspiring just with the language they use. So I outline everything probably to a fault where I will, and I'll stick to it. I won't, if I outline it, even if it doesn't feel like it's necessarily the best thing for the story, I've got some weird defect in my brain where I'll stick to the outline anyways, because that's the way, that's the way it was conceived. And it's like dishonorable to break that conceiving. I'll write out everything, the character names, what's happening in a certain sequence. And um, I very seldomly change any of that as I'm doing it. Well, you just said the title was to be difficult, but tell us a bit about the title itself. XLZABK001. Give us the scoop. What's the meaning there? All right. Well, it's not a deep meaning. I think the stories have deep meanings, but the title is deliberately not deep at all. It's XLIZA, abbreviated. XLZA is XLIZA. BK is book. And 001 is the first book. 
So um, all the music I released, all the self-released stuff, there was catalog numbers. So like an album would be XLZACD012 or something if it was like the 12th one. So this is just the first book that I've released. XLIZA has been like the name of my own record label, if you want to call it that. And it's uh, Exiliza is the name of the sword from the story Einhander. The term Exiliza comes from a video game called Thunder Force 2 for the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive if you're in Europe. Something I haven't talked about too much, but man, those, those 2D uh, side-scrolling shooters, if you think of, um, if you may be more familiar with like R-Type or Life Force, uh, those kind of, those games, man, they had a huge influence on me, the music especially. But there's a little, uh, the ship's name was Exiliza from Thunder Force 2. Mm. So I kind of picked that up. It's got the, the word Excel in it, and I like the fact that it's got a positive word in it. Exiliza was the name of the ship. And then the logo that you see on the cover of the book, the logo that I put on jewelry and everything else, that's a rendering of the little device that the Exiliza ship has. So it's fighting enemies. It's got this little drone that spins around and deflects bullets and powers up and stuff like that. It's just a, a two-dimensional rendering of that thing from the game. So not very deep at all, but uh, it's just something I picked out when I was younger and I stuck with it. And that's why the book is called that. But it's also called that because everybody else's book out there in the sword and sorcery or speculative fiction or horror, man, they've got these elaborate titles. And I get why they do that. I like that at a time. But you're all just copying each other now. It's just like too much of the same. And I'm not really from that world. So I wanted to make it different. I wanted it to stand out. And I wanted people to look at it and not even know what the stories were about in, in, in the inside. Because the cover is very avant-garde. It doesn't have any direct meaning to the story so much. And I, I want to appeal to people that are just generally curious. I would like someone to read my book who, like myself, doesn't have any experience with a lot of the... Uh, authors that have influenced other people that are writing today. People that might not even read fiction. I think there's a, there's a lot to be gained from the book for people that aren't even fiction readers in the first place. So I gave it that title just to be difficult and to separate it. Also, because man, a lot of the electronic music I listen to, they've got weird titles like that all the time anyways. So it's kind of an ode to some of that obscure Warp Records and Aphex Twin and Square Pusher kind of stuff. You said you don't like to read often, so with the genres that you specifically touch on in the book, you know, sword and sorcery, horror, action, what are some examples of the influences you, you do pull from in those genres? Was it films or...? Mostly film and music. The only author that I still come back to, and I, I just identify with, is Carl Edward Wagner. His Kane series, the character of Kane, and the way that Carl wrote him is like it, it's it's a Zaremba kind of a thing. Like it, there's just something about that that works for me. So I, I will. I mean, I think people that are familiar with Kane can see similarities in some of the other characters and in, in the stories I've got. But really, beyond that, it's it's movies. It's movies and music more than anything else. I write in a lot of ways that is visual visual from like an if i was a director it's almost like you could probably take some of my stories and easily make them into a script because of the way i write I'm not saying that's a a virtue or not but it's just it's what it's my personality so yeah a lot of films a lot of martial arts films a couple of good sword and sorcery films that were out there there's so much noise in the sword and those 80 sword and sorcery movies are mostly pretty awful first death stalker movie was like one of my favorites man death stalker was great of course conan was great and then all the crazy martial arts movies and all the european horror movies that i got into as well there's a lot of influence in that the um a little bit inside the the there's a series of stories from my album vade it was a double album of horror 
themed music. The protagonist from the Vade story, the main story, was basically lifted from uh, Knights of Terror was the movie. But there was, Peter Barker was the actor. But what the hell was his name in the Knights of Terror? Do you know the movie Knights of Terror? Uh, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank on it. It was um, Armando Osorio, so how he says last name was the guy that made it. It was a Spanish zombie movie, and there was this weird little freak of a adult that played the role of a child in it. His name may have been Peter in, in the, the movie as well, but Peter Barker was the name of the actor anyways. The character from Vade is, is based right from that. In fact, I even did an homage to his relationship with his mom. Like There's a scene in the movie where Peter Barker, his character goes, Mama, Mama. And then, like, he's a zombie, so he bites off her nipple, of course. He wants to breastfeed as an adult. There's a whole layer of, like, filth in that story. Um, but, but, like, his relationship with his mom was something I tried to pay an homage to in the Vade story. So things like that are what influenced me more than... I've been reading a, a lot in the last few months, but up until this book, I haven't really read much of anything. Well, you did say, like, while you were reading in preparation to write, you noticed that even though you hadn't read Michael Moorcock before, you noticed similarities between Exeliza and Stormbringer. I think that's a good sign, uh, but that's a bit odd, don't you think? What do you attribute that to? Did you, were you shocked at how similar the swords were? I, I guess I was, yeah. The thing is that I remember, like I told you, I'm, I'm, I'm good friends with Howie Bentley, and I would bounce ideas off of him all the time. And as I was writing that, I described the sword that I wanted to put in the story. And I, and I remember having a conversation like, I don't want to be derivative of this. This is what this is how the sword works. It's solid black. It's not made out of any known metal. It devours what it touches. It's a sword of entropy. It's a sword of nihilism. Has that been done before? And he's like, yeah, that's been done like by 10, 10 other people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a common theme. Don't sweat it. You're not going to create a, sto- a sword for a story that hasn't been done by a dozen other people already. Just make the story, which was great advice. So I was a bit shocked. And then like after um, I read Moorcock just over the last few months, I was amazed like after reading, I'm like, man, this is all over the place. There was an anime series I used to like from the late 80s called Tengu Raven Kuboto. And he had a freaking Stormbringer. It was an, it, it talked to him and everything. <laughs> and it was like exact same thing. It would drink the blood. It, like it, the guy would get weak if he wasn't killing with it. It was completely lifted from that. So I don't feel too bad about it. No, I don't feel bad at all. I mean, yeah, I was just saying it's it's cool, I think, that you never read that before and yet you still hit it right on the head. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I, I would honestly do it differently now. Knowing that now, if I were to write that story again, I would come up with something that wasn't so similar. With Einhander specifically, uh don't want to give too much away, but there just seems to be a lot of potential there for more going on within that universe. Is, is there any chance of that going forward? I don't think so. I don't. Uh, there is. There's, there's a huge backstory in it because like the the story takes place in, when the guy's at his peak. So everything that led up to him reaching that peak, th- there could be dozens of books probably made from all that if I really wanted to do it. But I don't. I don't because Einhander is one of the stories that I imagined. You know, when I was 12, 13 years old. Like it's it's almost literally that. And once I got into metal, there was a huge. It, solidify that story in my brain in such a way it's done like it's a one it's a one and done i don't want to milk it i don't have the the patience for like world building i'd have to think up of like so many more character names man i hate coming up with character names <laughs> all that kind of stuff it's just like why why i don't yeah no it, it's done i can i considered it but decided it against i'm just going to leave it as it is we touched on this a bit already promontory i love that story it's a it's a fresh take on zombies but uh correct me if i'm wrong you were in utah i believe you said when uh you were inspired for that 
So what was it about Utah that inspired Promontory? And was it the horde of Mormons? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because the, the Mormons, they're a little bit too straight-laced. I don't know. No, I, I don't know what it was because it doesn't take place. It takes place in Virginia. So the, the idea behind Promontory is like I always wondered in zombie movies, why is it only like the humans that get reanimated? You know, there's a couple movies where they'll have some crazy birds doing things and stuff like that, or maybe someone's pet does something. But like, what about all the stuff that's in the ground? Like the soil was made of dead organic matter. Why doesn't that have the ability to reanimate as well? Blob was one of my favorite horror films from the old days. And um, I find the blob legitimately frightening. The idea of a suffocating force that just consumes what it what it takes, and I think that's what the the, the slow moving zombies, which I prefer, I think that's what they represent. Is they they represent the brain dead that just crawl and creep, and you could be the greatest guy in the world, and they're just going to consume you because they outnumber you, you know, so much. And I so I wrote the story from that perspective. So okay, let's everything that's dead, mm-hmm. everything that's dead gets reanimated. And it gets turned into a stew. It's like this big gumbo of death and decay. You know, animals that were in the ground, even if you don't see them in the story, and they're a hundred feet down, dinosaurs, the guts or the, the 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 organic material that was left from the dinosaurs is moving around as well. And that to me, that is truly like a horrifying premise to be put in. Zombie movies are very rarely scary at all. So I wanted to to do some to write a story in a way that would be psychologically scaring. And uh, me is like, I'm, I'm really big into individuality, something that would like jeopardize my spiritual view of existence. And something like that really would, because it's just drowning is like a fear, but I told you, I don't like water. It's probably part of it too. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the angle I took on it. I didn't even I didn't even use the word zombie in the story intentionally no. because I don't want there's a, certainly a voodoo aspect to it. It's a supernatural story. They're not reanimated by radioactive waste or anything like that, like you would see. It's not a environmental triggering. It is a supernatural voodoo type of reanimation that's in there, but I don't want it to be thought of as just another zombie story. And it's definitely not still sticking on promontory the weapons that appear two that are on the cover i believe uh the hammer mark oberheim's hammer and the sword that joshua day starts off using is there any do you have backstory to those there's no backstory in the story obviously but obviously do you know where they come from and what their history is i do and there is actually a sequel to promontory so promontory when i envisioned this one i i could kind of tell you what happens because i haven't written it yet but what so those uh weapons were ancient weapons that were were under in this like catacombs, this civilization that was under the Americas that no one has known about forever. In combination of those weapons, there's also, I guess you'd call it sci-fi type of stuff. There's a spacecraft under the ground as well. So all those weapons and that hammer came from another planet, like an intergalactic council that monitors the balance of harmony throughout the universe. And by Oberheim passing the responsibility to maintain that balance to Joshua Day, it upset that harmony. So in the sequel, what happens is the, the weapons are lost. Well, no, he has the hammer at the end, but he ends up losing the hammer. And he goes back down into those catacombs and finds the spacecraft. And then in the sequel, Promethoa is a completely different type of story. It's a sci-fi story where he's battling the Intergalactic Council because they send ships to Earth. This sounds nerdy as hell describing it, but I'm hoping... No, it right sounds great to me. Yeah, that, but that's that's the idea behind it. Those weapons, were they came from another planet. They came from a different culture that is part of our prehistory. Whatever Graham Hancock is trying to describe, whoever inspired Graham Hancock to make this last Netflix, those guys... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, my next question was about Vade, which you've already answered, you know, where Vade came from. You kind of gave us the direct answer on that one. But one thing I want to say to you about Vade is Stephen King calls it the uh, the gross out effect is one of the one of the tricks you can use in horror, I guess. And that's something that you're really good at, especially in Vade. There's just a lot of moments that uh, make readers squirm a bit, I think. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Those are the kind of horror movies I like the most, honestly. I never liked any of the torture porn type of movies, like the saws and all that kind of stuff. I've always gravitated towards gore, but like Fulci gore, mm. like where you know, you're squeezing someone's head and there's bits pop out of their eyes you know stuff like that i love the guts and the gore and uh there's certainly certainly a lot of that invade the fourth story also well done um to me reminiscent of detective stories i grew up on like the shadow dark man little dick tracy did you pull from any nord detective stories specifically for vigilante romance not from those stories the the those were all inspired by italian vigilante cop movies i i have a bad time pronouncing anything just like poliziotano i think is how you would say it i don't know but um one of my uh favorite actors ever is maurizio Murley. he was like a knockoff franco nero but he's so much better than franco nero and i uh i love maurizio Murley's movies any of the films by enzo g castorelli that's why I named the city of Vigilante Romance Castorelli because it's an homage to the director. Those movies are hard as nails, man. They, um, they're fantastic. And of course, I like all the Charles Bronson movies, um, some of the early Clint Eastwood ones as well. Some of the American Vigilante cop movies are great too. That's where all that came from. But it, it kind of does have sort of a noir feel, I guess. You know, mm. I can see, you know, this, there could be the way he dresses is in a Dick Tracy sort of vein with the overcoat and the hat and the scarf and all that. So I can kind of see that, but I, I wouldn't say it was a direct influence, really. So, John, if folks wanted to purchase XLZABK001, where can they do so? Amazon, I guess, is the place that anybody would buy any book. <laughs> you got one place to go. So, and if you can't remember the title, I know I'm being difficult. I don't know who's going to be listening to this, who's going to listen to me ramble this far into this discussion. If you don't remember it, just look at whatever the subject line is of this podcast. My name will be in there probably. Just put in Zaremba. There's like five Zarembas ever. And uh, you'll probably get Peter Zaremba from the Flesh Tones. And there's a John Zaremba that did Earth versus the Flying Saucers in the 50s. I'm like the other Zaremba. <laughs> you'll find it that way. Just type in Zaremba on Amazon. You'll see it. And I'll, of course, put the link uh, to purchase it in the description and all that good stuff. So, John, you know, I ask everyone this. Have you ever had an experience you consider supernatural or paranormal? Yeah. 20. No, I was in college. 19 years old, maybe 20 years old. Back when I still lived in Pennsylvania, fell asleep in my parents' living room on the sofa. I'm not on camera now, so you can't see it, but I'm laying on my side. Imagine laying on your side, looking out you know, into the middle of the room. The living room had a small hallway before it went to the kitchen. In that small hallway, there were steps that would go down into the basement. So I don't know why I fell asleep and several hours later, I woke up, my eyes opened, fixated on a figure standing right in that small hallway by the top of those steps. It was a, it was a silhouette. People would probably call it a shadow person. I used to listen to Art Bell all the time and he would call it a shadow person. It was, it was tall as an adult and it either had its arms crossed in front of it, like it was standing there looking at me impatiently or it was cradling something in its arms. I couldn't tell. I only looked at it for, I mean, it could have just been a few seconds. 
and it had something there or his arms were crossed in front of it and it was silhouetted by the there's a small light in the kitchen behind it on the other side of that little hall and i was struck with terror like i've had an interest in this stuff for as long as i can remember and i always said if i ever see something supernatural i'm gonna talk to it like i'm just gonna you know for inexplicably i couldn't tell you why i was scareder than i'd ever been before and as soon as i realized that there was something there that wasn't right i rolled over and i put my face towards the back of the sofa you know so i couldn't see it anymore and i kept my eyes closed and i just felt something right over top of me and i was too scared to look up and turn around and look and see what was there but there was something that was cold like just bearing down on on the my back of my shoulders and stuff like that and um i stayed there until that feeling went away and then i you know very slowly looked up and made sure there was nothing there, and i ran upstairs and went to my bedroom and fell asleep that freaked me out terribly and i was afraid to sleep on that sofa for the longest time i didn't tell my parents about what i saw until i don't know it could have been a year or two later and somehow it just came up and my dad was like you know what whenever we moved in here i saw something go down those steps i was building something in the living room doing some sort of renovation and there was somebody that went down the steps into that basement. And I looked and I went down the basement, I called out and there was nobody there. And it was just there for a second. I never even thought about it until you told me this now. So there was something weird that happened uh, in that house or something, and I don't know what it was, but that was the only time, the only time I've had a supernatural experience. And I, like I said, I was so afraid for an unknown reason that I made a vow after that. I'm like, I am not gonna be afraid again. I'm not gonna be afraid again. If this ever happens again, I'm gonna wish for it. And then once I started making music and I started doing music that was inspired by horror movies, it was almost like I was calling out to these these spirits and these figures with the music I made. I wanted them to make contact with me and they never did, never again since then. And I would, I would welcome it now. I'd probably be afraid again, who knows? I'd hope I wouldn't be. I'd hope I'd be able to, to uh, deal with it, but that was it, man. Yeah, that was the only time. Shit, man, that's quite a time. You gave me chills with that story. Do you still have you listened to Coast and Co- Coast to Coast since Art Bell died? A George Norrie fan at all? No, not so much. I um, I kind of didn't like George Norrie when he was filling in for Art back like in the early two thousands. He's a he's a I think he's a nice guy. He's got a nice mustache. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think he I think he means well. His voice didn't work for me. Art Art conjured this atmosphere, man. He could be talking about anything, and his voice. And he was always in the high desert, you know. Yeah. I didn't even know what the high desert was. I'm like, man, what does that mean? Is he like on drugs in the desert? Is he high in the desert? <laughs> was he on some plateau somewhere? Like, what does that mean? And then like, he, then he was doing it like from the Philippines or something. There was just something about his persona on that show. I mean, he was a star. You talk about somebody was made to do something. Yeah. Art was made to do that. And then when George Norrie took over, even though he was trying his best it just it was just like the era is over and george nori also came around at the same time like the history channel and all these things came out and they just ruined all of that there was just so much saturation on tv with these fake monster hunting yeah and all this kind of stuff you're just like you know what i can't be i've got other things to do now i can't get into this you can't really match art bell's smoker voice you got to get cancer to get that kind of that depth. <laughs> you know what? I would say it was worth. I'm glad he got cancer. I will <laughs> say that here. I am glad he got cancer because if it wasn't for his smoker voice, he may not have been the star that he that he was. <laughs> I got to tell you the story about Moby. So, like I told you, I was getting into synthesizers and stuff in the, in the late '90s, early '90s, mid '90s around that era, and I decided. I want to try to build these things because you used to go to like Radio Shack and you can get electronic kits to build these weird little gadgets and stuff like that. So I started learning kind of how to put circuit boards together and I would get like an old Casio keyboard and use a keyboard from that. And I was building synthesizers. I wanted to build one for Moby and I wanted him to use it on an album. And this was just around the time like 
1995, 96 or so, where the internet was new, and these guys would talk to you. But you can't get an OB to talk to you on the internet now. So I reached out to him. I built this synthesizer, and he was living in New York at the time, and I sent it to him. I actually got the guy's address, believe it or not. I'm assuming it, it may not have been his personal address, but he gave me an address, and I sent it to him. And the dude used it on an album. The album was Everything is Wrong. It's a, it came out in 96, 97 or something like that. And um, he used it and and I was like honored, man. Like, I built something that Moby used on an album. I gotta like thank this guy. I gotta thank this guy. So I, I built a, that was a prototype that he used. So I built another one that was very similar to that. And I'm like, I gotta go to New York and I gotta get Moby to sign this synthesizer because I want his signature on it. This is something that I made to him, made for him that contributed towards his artwork, towards his productivity. So Moby was doing a, a fan signing at a bookstore because he was always into books and stuff like that. So I waited in line. I felt like an idiot carrying this big synthesizer, waiting in line with all these people, waiting to finally get to see Moby to get him to sign it. I don't know. I could have been there for an hour. And I don't like people as it is. And all these people were annoying me. I finally get up to the front. Dude, Moby was like, I don't know what he was on. Uh, he could have been drunk, but I think he was on like ecstasy or something like that. He didn't know who I was. He didn't recognize the synthesizer or anything like that. And I asked him, can you sign it? And he's like, I don't, I don't have anything to sign it. Uh, but then he, then he got out like some soy sauce and he spilled soy sauce all over the synthesizer and ruined it. Completely destroyed this work of art. The thing that contributed towards his album, he was too stupid and, and mental to know what it was that I was bringing to him. And I was hard. Soy sauce. So yeah, he just had so had a big big bucket of soy sauce on his table. I don't know what he's doing with all that, but he spilt it all over the keyboard and everything like that, and he ruined it. The thing that I made for him, he should have thanked me. He should have set up a private meeting with me, knowing that I was coming to New York to meet with me to discuss the synthesizer that I contributed. To, I mean, he, he the album wouldn't have been as good without it, and what? he just destroyed it. Can you believe that? Have you ever heard of anyone doing anything like that? Like any other artist that was like so drunk or so idiotic that they ruined the thing that somebody contributed to, to them? It would be horrible if there were a parallel to that story yeah. in the fantasy world. <laughs> it's got to be one in a million. It's got to be one in a million that happened. But Moby's on my enemies list ever since then. There's Moby. There's Pendulette. Pendulette's on my enemies list. And David Carradine, even though he's dead, he's still in my enemies list. Tarantino, too. I forgot. Moby, Tarantino, Pendulette is a new addition. And then David Carradine, rest in pieces. If I ever get Tarantino, I'll let him know he's on the list. Oh, man, I would love to talk to that guy. I can't stand him. You know what it is about Tarantino is that he likes all the same stuff as me, and he ruins it. <laughs> he, there's, 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 there's Italian cop movies. He just bastardizes the plots from those movies and all, but he rips everybody off. But he rips it off in such a sassy, dialogue-heavy, hey, man, I'm cool. I'm the guy that worked at a video store. Now I'm a millionaire. Like He does that. He, he just taints it and bastardizes all the things that I love. And I, I can't, I really like him. His movies are unwatchable. I don't know why he is so, his mountain is really working. I don't know why he is so popular of an artist. And he got started with a budget, too. Like Reservoir Dogs, I know it was a low-budget movie for the time, but... Even still, like most people's student, they have a student film behind them or something. I pass. He knew somebody. He's from some family with somebody. Somebody gave, opened up the doors to him, sight unseen, and gave him a ticket. Yeah, and there's other guys from that era. Like, uh, I'll give you another example. Robert Rodriguez. I'm not a big fan of his new movies, but man, El Mariachi was a fantastic movie. Desperado was a fantastic movie. He didn't get a pass. Mm -hmm. That guy had to work his way up. Another, like you know, golden child from that era is like M. Night Shyamalan. I don't 
not a fan of him either, but he started out from the ground up and he worked his way through it. Tarantino didn't work. He didn't he didn't play bars. He just got right up uh, to Madison Square Garden somehow. John, to put a bow on everything here, what's the best life advice you've received and who gave it to you? Man, that's a tough question. The best life advice I received. I don't know if I've ever had any good life advice. I mean, really, like um, my parents were good parents. I wouldn't I wouldn't have any ill things to say about them growing up, but I can't really say. Wait, no, no, that, I'll take that back. Work ethic. My parents never said you got to work hard for what you want. They never told me that. So it wasn't advice, but they demonstrated it. My dad always worked. My mom always worked. I came home to an empty house. I was what they call a latchkey kid in the in the 80s. You know, you didn't have a kid coming home to an empty house nowadays, but I did. I think the fact that they were always working instilled the ability for me to work for whatever I want as well and to be self-sufficient about it. Coming home to an empty house forced me to be self-sufficient. I had to make my own food. I had to entertain myself. I had to play with Legos and set things up. And so that would be it. Yeah, they, they demonstrated it. It wasn't advice. Like they didn't think about it as advice, but just by the way that they lived, they demonstrated a good work ethic for me. All right, John, just to wrap up and close the book here, what's on the horizon for you creatively, if anything, and where can people find you? I'm going to start the second book once it gets too hot to be outside. I'm in Tennessee right now. I know you're in a pretty hot part of the country as well. I got about another month where I'm before the bugs get to me and I got to come inside. So I'll start writing probably like in May or June. The next book, it'll take forever. I'm slow. I don't enjoy the process. It, uh, it'll probably be years. And it's not years because I'm working on it every day either. It's years because I'll work on it, then I won't touch it for a couple <laughs> months. You know, that kind of. That'll be the next the next book that comes out. In the meantime, johnzaremba.com. I got a very basic website. I made it simple as possible. Um, it just lists all the things I've done with links to check out all the things I've done. Most of that music, if you're interested in it, it's all um, on Bandcamp. You can listen to it for free. And then the book, of course, is the biggest thing. This is one of the biggest things I've I've worked on for a very long time. You just go to Amazon, type in Zaremba or XLZABK001, and uh, you can find it and uh, check it out. It, it would mean the world to me if, if you guys listening to this would check it out. And give me your thoughts on it, too. You can find me on Facebook or YouTube. John Zaremba got a channel there as well. There's a lot of you sword and sorcery folks that listen to this, and trust me, I've read the book, and not just because John's my friend. It's a great read. Buy the book, leave a review, help the man out for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate you bringing me on here. I um, I would, I would, I don't know how to say it. I um, I appreciate it a ton because I haven't had as many opportunities to do this kind of stuff to get this kind of exposure. I said the same thing to Dave Ritzland when he um he did a little feature on me for DMR Books's website, and that means a lot to me. So it means a lot to me. Uh, for you as well. I, I appreciate you as a friend, but I appreciate you bringing me on here to let me yap and be a bit obnoxious for a while. I appreciate you too, man. And thank you for sending me a copy of the book. I enjoyed it. It's always it's fun talking to you and we'll have to do it again when you get that second one out. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with John. As always, thanks for listening and we'll see you back next time. Monsters Madness and magic. <laughs>then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. 
This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.